0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Porerstein And we are both coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston.
1: And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Bureau.
0: It is Thursday, June
2: 6th.
1: Wait, it is the sixth month of the year, the sixth day of the month. And this is our 66th episode of this podcast.
0: Nothing can go wrong.
1: <laughs> on that note, here's what's on the docket this week.
0: The big cancer meeting known as ASCO just wrapped up. Stats Matt Herper and I were in Chicago all weekend covering it. We'll serve up some hot takes about what we heard and learned.
1: A widely shared story in the Washington Post more or less accuses the drug maker Pfizer of suppressing data about a potential treatment for Alzheimer's. We'll explain why the article is generating quite a bit of pushback.
2: And finally, we'll get an update from another biotech conference going on this week. Bio. Put on by the trade group with the same name. Our colleague Kate Sheridan has been in Philadelphia all week covering it and she'll call in to give us an update. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at Stat with a Stat Plus subscription. Stat Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to StatPlus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for
3: being a Read Out Loud listener.
1: The so-called Super Bowl of Oncology just wrapped up, where scientists and investors debate all the breakthroughs and blow-ups in the world of cancer research.
2: We are talking, of course, about ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting, which happens in Chicago each year. So Adam and Stats own Matt Herper just returned from the 2019 incarnation, and we are now going to goad them into some hot takes about the future of oncology.
1: Matt, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, guys. So from maybe the 30,000-foot view, it feels like the narrative going into the latest ASCO was that this was going to be something of a down year when it comes to exciting new research. Did that actually bear out over the weekend?
3: Oh, yes, definitely. We didn't have any of the kind of blockbuster, everything's changed results that maybe that we come to expect at ASCO, although they don't occur every year. But there really was a lot there, particularly in the space of targeted therapy drugs, you know, kind of pills for treating cancer that has specific mutations.
0: Yeah, I mean, Matt, I think you and I both wrote stories over the weekend about targeted therapies in lung cancer and elsewhere. And you know these are, these are drugs that, that really sort of target genetic vulnerabilities in, in tumors. And sort of what the companies do is then develop drugs that are highly targeted and sort of exploit these genetic vulnerabilities that they find in tumors. And I think this was a sort of a, a precision medicine slash targeted therapy ASCO. It was definitely some of the better data that we saw.
3: I mean, I think it's worth running through the list. There was Novartis in breast cancer, AstraZeneca, Zlenparza in several cancers, but particularly in pancreatic cancer and only a small subset thereof, Amgen in non-small cell lung cancer, Turning Point Therapeutics in non-small cell lung cancer, and Blueprint in non-small cell lung cancer. I mean, that's a lot of promising drugs. And what I kind of find interesting is these are all medicines that kind of Extend from the first time I remember in my career that people were really talking about this is the way we're going to cure cancer, which was the Novartis's Gleevec about 20 years ago, where you had these amazing responses in a form of leukemia.
0: And I would say the other thing that was pretty interesting is that, you know, with these targeted therapies that exploit genetic vulnerabilities in tumors, oftentimes what happens to patients is that um, the tumors grow resistance. And so these drugs stop working. And what researchers are now doing are finding new ways to— overcome that resistance so we're basically getting second and third generation drugs which as the tumors they're very smart and they can mutate and then they go back in and they find another weakness in that mutation and then develop a new drug
3: and in fact that's specifically what the turning point drug was patients that are already treated with Pfizer Zalcori but here's a potentially better option
1: so over the past couple years it seemed like the biggest headlines out of ASCO have been around immunotherapy drugs How did immunotherapy drugs fare this year at ASCO?
3: Maybe the definition of success is that you have extended survival in non-small cell lung cancer at the five-year mark dramatically, about tenfold. And nobody really seems to care.
0: I mean, I think it is kind of interesting. And it be, it's a sort of a statement of where we are with immunotherapy. Maybe take them for granted a little bit right now in that you're right, Matt. I mean, they showed, you know, we had five-year survival data from uh, Merck's uh, checkpoint inhibitor ketruta, which is, you know, pretty amazing. It just wasn't a year where there was like that wow clinical trial in immunotherapy that we've kind of been used to over the last few years. So it was just definitely kind of like an off year for, for immunotherapy.
3: I'd agree with that. Completely.
2: So one thing that caught my attention is, you know, there's this phrase undruggable that is appended to targets that exist in the human body that seem to be implicated in diseases, but that medicinal chemistry, as we understand it to this point, has just not been able to find any quarter with. And, you know, usually we put air quotes over that because when people invoke the phrase undruggable, they kind of mean to talk up whatever it is they do. But there was an undruggable target that was in the news out of ASCO that started to look a little bit more druggable. What happened there?
0: Yeah, I think this was probably the most interesting drug that I covered at ASCO this year. And this is from Amgen. The undruggable target that we're talking about is called KRAS. It's a protein And it's, you know, likened to a tennis ball, spherical, featureless, once thought to be undruggable. There's no way to sort of attach a a small molecule to it. Amgen researchers, among other people, have sort of figured out ways to do that. And we saw the first data, the first inhuman data from an Amgen drug that targets a certain form of KRAS. And... Tiny numbers of patients, we're talking about 10 lung cancer patients here, but they had 5 of 10 or 50% tumor response, which is pretty phenomenal in this early study. So again, very early look at this at this drug, but again, really promising a target that, you know, is KRAS is kind of implicated in like 30% of all solid tumors in, in various different forms. So this was a pretty big achievement.
1: So we've heard a lot of excitement and perhaps some hype over the last few years around liquid biopsies, so tests to try to find signs of cancer in the blood before it's detectable by existing means. What was the news like at ASCO this year uh, when it came to these liquid biopsy tests?
3: So there wasn't a lot of transformation. It was about liquid biopsy in treating cancer, which is... Really where it's used now, liquid biopsy for getting access to tumors you can't access, that's being adopted. That's happening. But kind of this big question has been, can you use this technology for screening? And one of the big companies to do that, to talk about that anyway, is Grail, which was spun off from Illumina, has raised... $1.6 billion, with a B, in order to develop a screening test. And they have studies ongoing in hundreds of thousands of patients. This was from a few thousand patients. But what they were able to show is they've picked a test out of their method for developing a test, and it's not actually focused on genetic mutations, but on the epigenome, something called methylation. And the kind of cool news is that they're able to with pretty good sensitivity and arguably good enough, 99% plus specificity, they're able to pick up cancers and tell where those cancer cells in the blood are from in the body, so you don't just get told, you may have cancer, but there's a good chance you have pancreatic cancer. The problem is, with these tests is always going to be that the math works out that many, many more people don't have cancer than do, so you can get a lot of false positives really quickly. And it's pretty exciting stuff. And there's also competition. Just before ASCO, we heard about another company called Thrive, which is coming out of a team led by Bert Vogelstein at John Hopkins, which has published some really cool cancer screening data with another liquid biopsy test.
2: So beyond all of the specific data sets that, that we were just discussing, one of the big things at ASCO is it's an opportunity for everybody to get together and kind of take the pulse of the state of oncology. So You both being there and and I'm drafting you as pulse takers. What is the state of oncology 2019?
3: The progress really is still pretty stunning. We are looking at a lot of targeted cancer drugs. And one kind of question you can kind of feel in the air is exactly where the line should be with bringing these products to market for how much data you need. There was a drug that was presented from Eli Lilly that was approved under accelerated approval, and then the approval was pulled after a second study didn't confirm the benefit. And people are starting to worry about that, which they didn't used to. You kind of mostly heard, well, we should approve this stuff faster. The other thing that I that's worth mentioning is that there were really questions about access and financial toxicity, and ASCO itself made a big point about a study about the Affordable Care Act and how it had by one measure, it had erased racial disparities in how patients with metastatic cancer were treated. There is a lot of concern about how much these drugs cost and also about whether patients are all getting the care they need, whether the healthcare system is doing an adequate job of treating people.
0: Yeah, I found that latter point interesting in that, you know, we tend to go to the ASCO meeting to, to look at the science and look at data, and there was definitely an emphasis this year, and this is coming from ASCO, from the organization itself, talking about patient access, talking about outcomes from people in states where Medicaid had been expanded and how that improved outcomes for patients. And, you know, ASCO is not a political organization. They do not take political stands. But it was clear that they were sending this message that, you know, Insurance matters. The healthcare system matters, and you know their big thing is they want patients, you know, access to oncologists, access to diagnosis, access to high quality treatments. And it was pretty clear that that was a point that they wanted to make in as sort of a apolitical way as possible.
1: Well, Matt, thanks for coming on the show.
0: Thanks for
3: having me. It's always great to talk to all you guys. The story here began when some researchers inside Pfizer's offices in Pennsylvania did a statistical analysis, and they discovered something really interesting, and that is that their drug Enbrel, which is for rheumatoid arthritis, had the side benefit of helping people avoid getting Alzheimer's in the first place.
0: That was Washington Post reporter Chris Rowland talking about his new story on Pfizer and Alzheimer's research. The piece generated a bunch of heated discussion on bio Twitter this week. Right. So I saw that. But I think it's important to kind of zoom out. What what did the post story
2: actually say?
1: Yeah. So the story reports for the first time that in 2015, Pfizer spotted some signal in claims data suggesting that an arthritis drug might be associated with reduced Alzheimer's risk. The drug in question is called Enbrel, and it's a blockbuster biologic used to treat arthritis.
0: Right. So the suggestion in the story was that Pfizer did something wrong. Well, They did two things wrong, apparently, according to the story. One, it should have followed up with more research. And two, Pfizer should have published those claims data analysis.
2: Right. So the broader implications seem to be that Pfizer, upon seeing this signal, had enough information to deduce that Enbrel could prevent Alzheimer's, but that they didn't conduct the additional research that would be required to tease that out because Enbrel is nearing the end of its patent life, at least here in the United States, and it already faces Uh, biosimilar competition in Europe. And so as the story phrases it, profits are dwindling as generic competition emerges, diminishing financial incentives to further research into Enbrel and other drugs in its class.
1: Yeah. So let's walk through some of the reasons that this story is getting so much pushback. I think the the first and, and most primary reason is this notion that it's feeding into the narrative that pharma is hiding cures. Adam, what did you make of that idea?
0: Right. And as Damien alluded to, I think the story suggests that, you know, Pfizer is sitting on this, you know, potential Alzheimer's drug, but because the drug, Embril, is going off patent that Pfizer realizes that it's not going to make a lot of money and so therefore it just buries this evidence, this these data You know, essentially because they felt like they would never make money. So then therefore, why help patients? And that does feed into this kind of trope that, you know, there's a cure for cancer and it's but it's being hidden by pharma in a secret Swiss vault.
2: Right. It's CBD. So that implication raised the hackles of people who actually work in the industry for all the reasons you just said. And for another one that that to be fair to the post is in the story, which is that. Pfizer supported a clinical trial testing Embril as a potential preventative treatment for Alzheimer's disease in 2015. It was only in 41 patients, but the data that they saw, which was published, was inconclusive. It was not the kind of thing that probably any drug company would have thought, oh,
0: this is a blockbuster here. We need to really pursue. Yeah. I mean, when I read the story, it immediately triggered a memory in me like, oh, Embril, the the scientific name of Embril is an etanercept. And I remember people discussing the role that this drug may play in Alzheimer's. And I went to PubMed and I typed in at intercept Alzheimer's. And sure enough, there are studies that have been published, both company industry-sponsored studies and investigator-sponsored studies, going back to the early 2000s that looked at this drug's role, potential role in Alzheimer's. So the suggestion in the story that this idea, these data were buried and kept secret, I think just sort of falls flat when you realize that, you know, this has been discussed in scientific circles before.
1: There's also the question of, claims data and kind of the basis of this signal. Claims data is extremely iffy, as anyone familiar with biomedical research knows well. There's a lot of confounding variables, a lot of ways you can get tripped up by things that look like an association in these claims, but upon further inquiry falls flat. I think Ari Caroline, uh, he's chief analytics officer at Memorial Sloan Kettering, said it well on Twitter that, quote, we need to repeat the qualifier in claims data as often as we repeat, quote, in mice.
0: So Derek Lowe, a medicinal chemist and blogger, uh, had a really nice post about, about this whole thing. And he notes that you know this insurance claim data, there were 127,000 people with Alzheimer's diagnosis in one group and there was 127,000 people without Alzheimer's. But in that group, I mean, you're talking about 300 patients versus 110 patients who either had embol or didn't. It's a really small number. It's It's very difficult to sort of draw any kind of conclusion from those data.
1: There's also, I think, a key question about sort of what Pfizer would have done with this data had it conducted more research because of the simple fact that it doesn't have marketing rights to this drug in the United States. And that, in fact, is Amgen that holds rights to market Enbrel in America and Canada.
2: Right. So that is sort of a, a thorny issue that is addressed by the story, but that I think, you know, the way it's framed kind of frustrated some people on the outside looking at it. But I think the other implication, which is, as we mentioned, that, you know, Enbrel's aging patents were a motivating factor in the decision not to conduct a larger clinical trial to tease out this purported Alzheimer's benefit. I think that fell flat in people's minds because, and this isn't even necessarily a compliment to the drug industry, Um, It's an industry, and what they're very good at is making money. And in order to make money, they have to be able to patent stuff. If Pfizer really believed that Enbrel could potentially be a treatment for Alzheimer's, they would deploy that army of lawyers, and they would find a way to get new intellectual property around it. Or, more likely, they would find a new molecule that was just Enbrel-esque enough that could be renewedly patented, and then they would make billions and billions of dollars because, as we probably should have underlined at the outset, which you may already know, Alzheimer's is an incredibly prevalent disease with no disease-modifying treatments, which is to say that anybody who comes up with one will be printing money upon approval.
1: So I think all of us have written many stories uh, with many flaws. I certainly have. You know, lest it seem like we're sort of piling on to a story that perhaps had some issues, why does this matter?
2: Well, I think, candidly, I saw people angrily tweeting about it the night before I actually read the story, which was that morning. And so I expected a very problematic report, which I didn't find. I do think there's a story here. I understand people's issues with the framing. And then I kind of moved on with my life. And I guess what I forgot is that this was in the Washington Post, which gets a larger readership than, for example, stat. So I consume almost every bit of news reporting about how the drug industry works. But mom and pop Washington Post reader don't necessarily. So this made a considerable splash. And the way I kind of became aware of that was, I was getting, you know, emailed press statements from various academic groups, either castigating Pfizer or defending it. Um, Pfizer itself sent out a tweet that just reeked of general counsel approval, saying that the Washington Post story does not accurately portray our approach to science based decision making. And I guess the long winded point that I'm making is this matters because a lot of people who don't read about the drug industry and the nuances of how it works that we just discussed did read this story. So for everyone who thinks that this story was poorly framed or or conceivably misleading. This is like a five alarm fire for them.
0: And it does underscore the problem of sort of the public relations problem that the pharma industry has, because a story like this gets out there. And if you if you happen to look at the comments uh, under the story of the weather on Twitter or on the digital pages of The Washington Post, you know, people buy into this, right? People buy into this idea that pharma is hiding cures for disease because they feel like that's the best way to make money. I mean, I don't necessarily think that's true, but you know, from a public relations standpoint and from sort of a credibility standpoint, perception standpoint, it's a problem for the industry.
1: Yeah, I can't tell you how many people that I've, you know, just sort of met in my normal life who when I tell them what I do for a living, automatically say, Oh, you know, I think the Drug industry is hiding a cure for cancer. They're hiding a cure for HIV. This is a sadly prevalent perception, and I think it speaks to the challenges that the industry has in kind of shaping the way that people think about the work they do. Next up, we're going to talk about the annual bioconference, which took place in Philadelphia this week. For the uninitiated, Bio is not a conference where much news gets made. It's more of a networking shindig that draws biotech types from all over the world.
0: Stats Kate Sheridan spent the week in Philadelphia covering Bio, and she joins us now to tell us what went down. Kate, welcome back to the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. So it seems like a theme every single year at Bio is that of drug pricing and the politics around a potential crackdown. What was that discussion like this year?
4: It seemed like it was kind of hovering over the conference. You know, it was mentioned in almost every keynote, in almost every fireless fireside chat. It was really just kind of the undercurrent that gave shape to a lot of the discussions, it seemed. So,
0: Kate, who attends this conference?
4: So a lot of different people tend to attend this conference, but one thing that we did notice this year was that there seemed to be fewer people from the West Coast than maybe one would expect. We've heard from a couple people that folks from the left side of the country don't actually like to attend the conference when it's in Philadelphia. It's my first time, so I don't have that many reference points.
1: So I agree with this idea that Philadelphia is way too far. Living in San Francisco, I'm of the opinion that San Jose is way too far.
2: So one thing externally that seemed attention grabbing was the keynote address from Jamie Dimon, who of course runs the uh, mega financial conglomerate JP Morgan, and maybe most pertinent to people at Bio is one third of the allegedly healthcare disrupting company called Haven, which is a joint venture between JPMorgan Berkshire Hathaway and Amazon.com. Kate, what did Jamie have to say?
4: Jamie had a lot to say. The keynote that he gave was a very wide ranging discussion. They covered all kinds of things like raising the minimum wage, universal healthcare. But the one thing he did say that seemed slightly newsworthy, at least to our audience here, was that he didn't even seem to pretend that Haven was just intended for Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase's employees. He made it very clear that the company might have an impact on the American public's health care. So that was kind of interesting.
1: So one thing that happens every two years at Bio is they anoint a new chair of the trade group. So for the past two years, that chair and kind of the voice of the industry has been John Maragonore, that's the CEO
4: of El Nylum. But tell us about his replacement. Yeah, so his replacement is Jeremy Levin, who's the CEO of Ovid Therapeutics. He is an interesting guy. I sat down with him a little bit on Wednesday to get a sense of kind of who he is and what he sees his impact being in this position. He said that John Maragonori did give him one piece of advice in a way, which was to just be yourself. Apparently, this has been a push for him over the last two years to make the Bio Board be more natural when they're communicating with people. And so he asked John, you know, John, did you really mean that? Because, you know, if uh, you don't want me for exactly who I am and if being who I am is not going to be helpful, then pick someone else, he said.
2: That's interesting. I feel like it kind of underlines a question I've always had about bio and about the chairman of bio, which is what is all of this for? And like without getting like all ontological about it or whatever... What does it mean to be the chair of BIA? What do the member companies expect from the person who becomes sort of the public face, uh, at least on the industry side of this organization?
4: It's funny, I asked him that very question, as a matter of fact, and he gave me kind of a long answer. And, you know, went back to the beginning of bio and said, you know, in order to understand what it means to be chair of bio, you need to understand what the organization is. In short, it seemed to boil down to just you have the ability to ask the questions that you want to ask and pursue the policies that you want to pursue. Yeah, it strikes me
1: as the president in countries where the prime minister has all the power.
4: That's actually not a bad way to think about it. There's been the same CEO of bio for 15 years. And so a certain amount of continuity
0: comes from that. And Kate, lastly, you attended a bio party that is not a bio party, uh, but which is controversial. Can you tell us about that?
4: Yes. So I went to a charity gala last night, which seemed to be, at least to me, Uh, the spiritual successor to a party called the Party at Bio Not Associated with Bio. This party last year gained a lot of attention, and not necessarily in a good way, for the dancers that it had as the night's entertainment. They were topless and had logos painted on them. There were no topless dancers this year, and the dancers they did have did not have any logos on them, Um, but there was a PowerPoint presentation that I found very interesting. Uh, the organizer of the party, Martina Molesberg, and tomorrow said, "Everyone, please be offended by things that truly matter, which, for the presentation, were war and conflict, poverty and greed, and social injustice." And uh, unsurprisingly, perhaps for a charity gala, charity was given as the solution. Oh God, that
1: is exactly the kind of thing that would happen in a place like this.
4: Another thought <laughs> that I have
1: is that we don't talk enough about the camel that was brought to the
4: 2016
1: iteration of this party. I think about this all the time.
4: I can report that there were absolutely no camels or live animals of any kind.
2: I am still a little hung up on this PowerPoint presentation because it sounds like the scene in Clockwork Orange where his eyes are peeled open and he's forced to watch atrocities. So what you're saying is everybody is having a good time and drinking and enjoying revelry and then somebody clicks through a PowerPoint of like famine and pestilence?
4: There were no descriptions or images of famine and pestilence, but there were certain discussions thereof. It was a little bit of an interesting juxtaposition, I'll say, because the immediate preceding event to this PowerPoint was a dance squad that seemed to be <laughs> flown in from San Diego to, to dance, and they were costumed in, you know, appropriate goddess and gladiator, which was the theme outfits and, and whatnot. So it was an interesting thing that I, I frankly wasn't expecting to see at a party, but, you know, it's bio. PowerPoint happen.
2: I like that BIOS parties have now pivoted into their, like, grad school performance art <laughs> segment, where we just have live animals, a dance troupe, a PowerPoint featuring <laughs> horrific imagery,
0: and then I guess an open bar. So, hey.
4: You know what? It was actually a cash bar.
0: Oof. And the drinks all cost $2.1 million. <laughs> And that does it for another episode of the Read Out Loud. Before we go, Rebecca, tell us about the big event we're having next week.
1: Yeah, so our colleague Matt Herber and I are hosting an event in San Francisco uh, next Thursday night. We're going to be talking about the intersection of technology and the drug business. And we're going to have a great lineup of speakers. We've got Hal Barron from GlaxoSmithKline, Jennifer Doudna from UC Berkeley, we've got Daphne Kohler from Incitro. should be a great set of conversations, and if you are interested in joining us, you can go to STAT's website to uh, get a ticket.
0: Thank you to Hyacinth Bernardo, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers and Rick Burke, as always, is our executive producer.
1: And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what kind of parties you went to in grad school. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.
2: And speaking to platforms, this podcast is now available on Spotify, so if that is something that you prefer, please do look for us there. See you next week.